You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, and uh, my co-host uh, joining us uh, from the Red by the Red Sea in Egypt, Amir Gagarin. Uh, you're going to stay with us uh, uh, for this next segment. Yep, I'm still here. Hi, everybody. Hi, Nick. Hey, Amber. It's good to see you. Well, hear you. Yeah, sorry. I can't have my video on. It's uh low connection, you know. But anyway, your your article was great. Nick had a great article um commemorating his his mom in the sixties generation that she was a part of uh in our recent December January issue. Right. So let's hop right into it. We we have just a little bit of a late start here, but we still have about fifteen minutes to talk talk about your article and your mom's life, Nick. Um it, it, in the article uh referring back to uh your mom in the 60s, you write, all the marches and slogans scooped my mother's life like a giant wave and lifted her out of the neighborhood, out of the family, and flung her into America. Uh, can you sort of set the stage here uh, with your mom and in and, and the late 60s and, and uh, how it transformed her life, as you, you hint at in that uh, quote from your article? Yeah, my mom's life is a measure of the psychological and social distance uh, between her living in a small, it's okay, in a small Puerto Rican enclave. <laughs> that's my, that's, that's the grandson. So I, okay, hold on, true. Okay, true, true. Just for oh. our listeners, our, uh, Nick has sure. a, a four year old son, a grandson yeah. of the one right. we're he, talking he about. He just got distracted again. Um, but anyway, just to quickly just say that, uh, her life and her article is kind of a measure of the psychological and social distance from a Puerto Rican enclave in the 1940s, um, going all the way to the really crisscrossing the United States, um, going overseas. I remember her going to, um, Spain and her telling me stories of visiting, uh, uh Spain under Franco. And, um, so, you know, that's her life crossed so many political, personal, and neighborhood boundaries. Um, you know, so she was born in 1948, and it, so she was 20 years old in 1968. So literally, she's kind of hitting uh, prime just as a 68, you know, kind of moment is is hitting its peak. And how did that affect her? Yeah, she, you know, she was a translator between the English and Spanish-speaking worlds. So the Spanish-speaking, uh, you know, her parents, her neighborhood, growing up here, speaking English very fluently, and translating between both worlds. But the Spanish-speaking world was very old world. It was very, you know, her parents and the neighborhood were very traditional, um, conservative in many ways. And so the ideas that she was learning were coming, in a sense, from her English side. You know, coming from uh, being in the West Village in the cafes and watching someone like Allen Ginsberg. She told me the story many times of being in the cafe and seeing Allen Ginsberg and other famous beat poets compose poetry there and then stand up and tell everyone that they would like to read a poem. And people would just put down what they were doing and listen to the poet read the poem. And so she... um she read, she listened, and she began to live these new ideas that were drifting in the air. Right, Nick. And, you know, I, I thought something that's really interesting about that article is you talk about uh, the sort of 
glow of the 60s generation. So if you could explain that more and where you think it came from, but also in the article, you you, you say there's a photo of her holding you when you were just a baby or a toddler and that you can see the glow on her and you can see it on you too. But, you know, you're obviously from the next generation, I guess, Gen X. So what do you think is the relationship sort of between generations? We often talk about the tension between generations, but what do you think is the sort of positive relationship and the positive definitions there? It was free love. You know, mom, one of the ways that mom broke out of the the kind of immigrant conservatism, kind of working class ethos of that early Puerto Rican, New Yorkian enclave was obviously the arts and then also the idea of free love, you know, dating multiple people at the same time. I guess, you know, the, the, the we would call it poly now, polyamory. Um, really kind of exploring her body through dance, taking psychedelics, you know, not often, but enough to get the point. And so the ideas at the time were about returning people to their bodies and trying to break out of the kind of social straitjacket of very conformism, 1950s morality. And then as the 60s went into the rearview mirror, um, I think what she, how she interpreted um, that free love ethos, that being in your body ethos was as a parent being very, very, you know, listening to me, treating me as an equal. Loving. <laughs> okay. Come on over here, Drew. I think you got it. You got it, baby. And as you can tell, um, I try to pass that on with my son, which is that, you know, she wasn't a cold or aloof or distant parent. Um, and so the joy, that kind of free love ethos that she gave, um, to me is something that I pass on, you know, to my son. And, um, just kind of, I guess as a quick aside, I don't want to burn up too much time, but I, I think one of the consequences of working class life and, or being poor and the traumas that come with it, that, that it can close people off from their own bodies and also close off people from each other. And so there's kind of an authoritarian, very disciplinary uh, type of family structure that begins to, to to get set. And one of the greatest gifts that she gave me was that kind of the the free love, the openness of the 60s. She I, I felt it as a child, not through the ideas, not through the political slogans, but how she held me, how we played, you know, running around the living room with, you know, water guns or dancing. Um you know, falling asleep in front of the TV, uh, talking to each other, her actually listening to, you know, all the stories the kids, you know, tell their parents. And, um, and I think she really kind of broke a cycle of kind of, um, you know, disciplinary, authoritarian type of parenting. And, and I benefited from it. And that's what I'm giving, giving to true. Right. And of course, one of the iconic moments of that. Uh, 60s era counterculture was the the Woodstock uh, music festival uh, held in Bethel, New York, in August of 1969. Um, and, and you recount a, a little bit of your mom's experience there. Uh, you just describe how she got there, how she ended up at the backstage of all places uh, at Woodstock, and just uh, what yeah, her you experience know, was. It it was all like, you know, by the by the grapevine, you know, like all the cool young kids, you know, she was a cool young kid. And, you know, they heard about the the big event in Bethel, uh, Woodstock and then Bethel. And um, she was dating this brother from the West Village. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, he was very flamboyant, you know, had the cowboy hat. and he, But more importantly, he had his own Jeep. And so she was dating him and they said, hey, let's go up to this event. 
So they drive upstate, and of course, you know, they have to park their car far away from the gate like everyone did, and they walk into the event. And she got caught up in in the swirling of people and the the crowd waves and and the rain dance and and so they wind up separating. They just kind of lost each other in the crowd. Right. They and, didn't have cell phones to text each other with. No. And and so what she was blown away by was that for the next three days, people fed her. They let her sleep in the the Volkswagen or in their tents. And, you know, she was already a, a kind of off-Broadway actress at that point. She had gone to the salsa clubs, to the, you know, the rock and roll clubs. And she was a really big dancer. She loved to dance. And so somehow she just danced her way backstage uh, at Woodstock and was smoking weed with the musicians and the producers. And, you know, and uh, and then after the the three days were up and the festival was over and everyone's streaming out of the event. So, of course, who does she meet? Again, synchronicity, serendipity. Uh, she meets her her date, who also had a great time, and he wasn't angry at all. He he loved it, and so they rode back to New York City. Uh, he was so happy he threw his cowboy hat out the window, and uh, and she said he was very chivalrous. He made sure that she got home safe, and um, for the for for the rest of her life, when we talked about Woodstock, it was for her a spiritual and aesthetic turning point in her life because she realized that strangers can take care of each other and treat each other like family. And that really kind of opened up her mind to that other worlds were possible, more humane worlds, more kind worlds, more fun worlds um, were possible if people opened up their hearts. That's funny because my mom also has a story of getting stuck in a crowd <laughs> before the time of cell phones um, as a as a, a, a young boomer. But it was at an Evil Knievel <laughs> event where he was supposed to be jumping the Snake River Canyon. <laughs> totally failed. Anyway, um, that's a story for another time. But uh, I wanted to ask you, Nick, too about some of the more at least uh, obvious outwardly political stuff. Uh, which was her involvement or relationship with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords and the sort of political and community work that they were doing in the city at the time. And then I believe she got into some tenants housing work as well. Yeah. Yeah. So she was uh, her and her crew. I don't know if it was a formal crew or it was part of a larger organization, but she told me that they had a storefront operation where they were kind of 24 seven holding tenants rights workshops to help tenants know what their rights were against landlords in the city. And that was one of her main, you know, forms of activism. And so she was never a formal part of the Black Panthers or the Young Lords, um, but she was part of the hippie scene. She was an activist. And so she hung out with them and she partied with them and they partied pretty hard, according to her stories. And she bounced back and forth between the hardcore activism. And, you know, she said, you know, sometimes she got tired of the, of the rhetoric. You know, it, it, she said sometimes it felt like someone pulled a string on their back and they were just like, blah, 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 just talking in rhetoric. And so she got tired of that. So she would hang out with the hippies and do LSD and dance and, and have fun. But then she got tired of the hedonism of the hippies and of their kind of, you know, chakra, new age, spiritual talk. So then she would hang out with the activists again. So she kind of just like bounced back and forth between these two worlds. And, you know, she would tell me crazy stories like, you know how the young lords and the and the panthers would. What's wrong, True? Well, here, let me give you a kiss. Mm, I'm sorry. How the young lords and the black panthers would, you know, get high and and drink and and hook up. Mm. Oh, this one. Which one? Mm, I'm sorry, baby. 
And Nick's being joined by his uh, yeah. son here. And but um, but yeah. So and I I think the most important thing that she gave me about the sixties wasn't just the ideas, the the political positions. It was the really lived on the street in the club reality of you know people who were very earnest and idealistic trying and sometimes tripping over their own feet to to make the world a better place and so it was a very grounded story of you know again people having affairs people hooking up people getting ahead of themselves people being ambitious uh people you know being careerist and at the same time people sometimes going to jail uh confronting the cops uh giving hope to the poor and to the working class and fighting and sometimes having real tangible victories. And um, all of that, all of that was, was part of the scene. Right. And, and of course, I mean, the sixties would eventually recede into the past and uh, your mom ha- had to move forward with her life. And um, she had you and, and raised you as a, a single mother and, and became a, a public school teacher in time. Uh, can you kind of just talk about how, you know, she sort of, uh, you know, re- returned to the uh, mainstream world and, and made a life, but it was, it was still informed by uh, some of the experiences of the late sixties. Yeah. She was at a, a crossroads and she had gone to law school. And at that point, the corporations were really kind of poaching. They were hungry for minority lawyers, you know, minority, uh, you know, workers. And so she, uh, got all, you know, she was in law school and she had a choice. She could have gone into corporate law or she could, um, you know, use that degree and help people. <laughs> she could have used that degree to help people. Oh, sorry. And, um, and what, and eventually what she did, she actually chose to be a middle school teacher for immigrant students in Queens and mostly Chinese and Mexican, um, students. Um, and they loved her because she actually, <laughs> she brought, she brought all of her theatrical skills, I see it, and all of the lawyer skills um, to the classroom. And so sometimes she helped parents, again, figure things out with their landlords or with, you know, the documentation. She helped kids in her theatricality learn in ways that maybe some of the other teachers couldn't reach them. She spoke fluent Spanish, so she was able to reach the, the Spanish-speaking kids. So, you know, mom learned from the 60s that that the world really needed lesson plans and tenderness and not necessarily uh, another lawyer or, you know, someone else on certainly not another corporate lawyer, not another corporate lawyer or, or, you know, just a a Brown Latina at wall street. Like, you know, she was like, no one needs that right now. What the world, you know, for her, what the world needs um, are teachers and nurses and musicians and artists. um, And, you know, those who are, who are actually working, with the people uh, to improve life. And so she, that was the turning point. Right. We'll have to uh, go here shortly, but of course, uh, uh, talk about the final chapter of your mom's life and having to say goodbye to her. Yeah. She was in getting dialysis in uh, Staten Island hospital. And uh, during the dialysis, she, she choked um, on her own, own spit and so she went into a coma. She, her oxygen, there was no oxygen in her brain. So uh, a few days later, you know, about a week later, she had been on the breathing tube. And so uh, me and, and my friends uh, gathered around her. We played uh, Aretha Franklin and salsa music and we moved her feet and 
We told her that we loved her. We read her her favorite poetry from Lord Byron. And we pulled the tube out. And in the last few seconds, she was able to turn her head and open her eyes and, you know, look at us one last time before she passed. And, and as she passed, we just told her that we loved her. We loved her. We loved her. And we absolutely did. So I'd like to think she uh, went to the next place on a big, giant sofa-shaped heart, a big red heart, just carried her over. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Nicholas Powers, thank you for joining us again on the uh, Independent News Hour. Uh, and uh, I, I urge everyone who can uh, get a hold of the uh, our print edition to do so. I mean, there's a lot of great articles, but Nick's is, uh, you know, really something. Uh, he's just scratching mm-hmm. the surface here. And, uh, of course, you can find us online at independent.org as well. The article's online also. Uh, Nick and uh, True uh, over there off in the corner, thank you both uh, for joining us. Uh, this evening. Thank you, John. Thank you, Amber. And uh, we, thank, we thank our uh, board operator, uh, Reggie Johnson, and uh, we'll be back same time next week. And what's our what's our final song for the night, uh, Amber? It is Motherless Child as performed by Richie Havens at, you guessed it, Woodstock, Ode to <laughs> Nick's Mom. Thank you. Appreciate it, <laughs> Get on my